We have prayed, God, and we pray again, wanting to be attentive to you, wanting to honor you, wanting to uh, see you, wanting to have fellowship with you through conversation. As we open your word uh, together again this evening, Give us eyes to see and ears to hear the things that you would have us know and learn and become. Give us hearts that are good soil to receive your word. We pray and ask uh, through Christ the Lord. Amen. At the four o'clock service, uh, we had a lot of fun with Christmas characters, figures, cartoons, uh, sort of things from pop culture. It was a lot of fun. Uh, this evening, uh, we're going to uh, talk about things that are for a more mature audience. <laughs> so our scripture reading this evening comes from the Gospel of Matthew, beginning at chapter 1, verse 1. If you're familiar with the Gospel of Matthew, uh, you are uh, probably inside going, oh no. But uh, get comfortable. This is uh, going to be long. If you'd like to read along... Again, this is a, a midnight service. The idea is that it finishes up at midnight. <laughs> Kidding. If you want to follow along in the Pew Bible, page 681, uh, listen closely. This is the Word of God, Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac was the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez was the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Amenadab, Amenadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, Boaz the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Solomon the father of Rehoboam, Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asa. Asa the father of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat the father of Jehoram. Jehoram the father of Isaiah, Isaiah the father of Jotham. Jotham, the father of Ahaz, Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, Manasseh, the father of Ammon, Ammon, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel, the father of Abihud, Abihud, the father of, the father of Eliakim, Eliakim, the father of Azor, Azor, the father of Zadok, Zadok, the father of Achim, Achim, the father of Elihud, Elihud, the father of Eleazar, Eleazar, the father of Mathan, Mathan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. Thus there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 more from the exile to the Messiah. This is the word of the Lord. 
Matthew's gospel account of the birth of Jesus begins not with stars and angels and shepherds. In fact, Matthew doesn't even mention the star or the angels or the shepherds. Not because those things weren't important, they were important, but because Matthew had even more important things to say in the limited space he had to work with. Matthew's account begins in what we might call the mist of more ancient times, going back thousands more years through the genealogy of Jesus, a tedious genealogy admittedly. It can be painstaking to get through. Maybe it was for you. It's a challenge for me to try to pronounce all of those names. We are inclined to want to zip through or over the genealogy of Jesus and get to the good stuff, get to the action. But Matthew clearly thinks that this is not only important, but the most important and best way then he can begin his gospel or good news about Messiah. Matthew's recounting the genealogy of Jesus has a purpose. We have to remember that and certainly many purposes that are often overlooked. For starters, Matthew doesn't begin his gospel once upon a time like fairy tales begin, like legends begin, like the movie Star Wars begins and which always signaled to us that something didn't really happen, that what is about to follow is fiction, but Jesus is very much real. Jesus happened. Jesus is. Moreover, there's not going to be a moral to this story with the nativity. The shepherds and angels and wise men are not being held up as examples for us so much, The Gospels are not telling us what we're supposed to do as much as they are telling us. Matthew is telling us what has already been done, what God has done. This is an announcement, sort of like you might get a birth announcement in the mail from a friend. You are not really being asked to do something with that. We are simply being told with joy what has already happened. And that may or may not prompt a response for us, a gift, a note, a call, shared excitement, gratitude, rejoicing. But in some ways, that's not the the point. The point is there is an announcement of good news. And of course, the whole of who Jesus is will soon be revealed. There is more to Jesus than simply his miraculous birth and or his fulfilling of prophecy. And a response to that and the rest of who Jesus was and is at some point will be appropriate. The whole of the reader's life will eventually be affected. Each of us will come to a fork in the road where we must do something with Jesus. But that will come later. Now we are asked to listen and to consider. And now for the sake of context, consider this. We live in a highly individualistic world or realm or society or culture. We live in maybe the most individualistic culture the world has ever seen or experienced. We don't realize that because it's all we've known, it's all we've lived in. 
but it hasn't always been this way in any culture over the course of time. In our world, I am who I am according to what I have made of myself, what I have accomplished, who I have become or who I will become informs and shapes who I am, the way I think of myself, the way I understand myself, who I am. In contrast, Matthew's world was very different. Jesus' world was very different. It was far more communal. It was family-oriented. People were tied together. I know my grandparents' names. My grandfathers both died when I was very young. My grandmothers lived until I was in college and after college. I know all four of their names and their last names. And I really don't know much more about them. Of my eight great-grandparents, or more including step-grandparents, I know maybe one of their names, and I'm not even sure of her name. I am that detached from my ancestors, who they were, because they don't affect the way I think of myself or who I am. Who they were is who they were. They have little bearing other than genetics on who I am. But that was not the case in Jesus' time. In Jesus' time, and for Matthew, a person's genealogy was like their resume. In those times, it was one's family, one's pedigree, one's tribe, or one's clan that constituted or that informed who a person really was. So a genealogy was a way of saying to the world, this is who I am. This is who he is. And it's interesting that in those days, people actually did tinker with their resumes, just as people do today. We tend to leave out the less flattering parts of our track records that may not make us look good. We know that Herod the Great purged many names from his public genealogy because he did not want anyone to know that he was connected to certain people. Back in that time, a person's genealogy, their line, their pedigree, their family, their ancestors, very much informed who they were. And a person would, could, and Matthew did tweak a little bit of this genealogy. Anyone who was a good Jew and read Matthew's genealogy knew that there were more than 14 generations, at least in that third grouping. Matthew left out a couple because Matthew wanted it to be just 14, but that was okay with them. It may not be okay with Ancestry.com today, but that was okay in the way that they thought of things. And Matthew loved the three groups of 14, three being a great number to a Jewish mind, and 14 being twice seven another really good number with a message in there that I'll say a little bit more about in a moment. And so looking at Jesus' genealogy, in the first section, we have this long group of names starting with Abraham. Matthew is 
fascinated with each of these groupings and lists, but he does a few different things along the way. Only four of the fathers listed are connected with named women, you may have noticed as we read along. And all four of those women are racially or morally different, we'll say. The four women are, were, are Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba. Tamar, you recall, and this is actually straight out of Jerry Springer, to tell you the truth. If you don't know the story of Tamar, uh, you can read it in chapter 38 of the book of Genesis. Judah is one of the children of Joseph and one of his sons. Judah gets married, has three sons, arranges for Tamar to be wife of the first son. First son dies. Judah says to second son, you be the husband of Tamar. He doesn't want to, so God kills him too. Tamar, Judah doesn't want to lose his third son, so says to Tamar, sorry, I've only got one son left. You go back to your parents' home and live the rest of your life as a widow. Tamar does that, realizes that she's really destined for nowhere in her life. Third son dies, and she realizes he's never going to be hers. Judah's never going to give her the third son anyway. And so Tamar, when she hears that Judah has lost his wife to death, and Judah is now a widower, has an idea. <laughs> Maybe I will dress up like a prostitute and deceive my former husband's my deceased husband's dad, so that I can bear children and be someone through him. Jerry Springer. <laughs> she plays the harlot in order to trick her father-in-law into keeping his promises of providing for her a husband. The fruit of that tricky union ends up being one of the great-grandfathers great-great-grandfathers of Jesus. And then there's Rahab, who was a harlot, a woman of the night, a prostitute, we can say, at the 930 service. And though she has some redeeming qualities, and later on is, in the book of Hebrews, is lifted up somehow as a model of faith, and in James, as a model of good works, Historically, she's also just a prostitute, and yet she is included by Matthew in the genealogy of Jesus. Doesn't have to be. And then there's Ruth, who is morally the least questionable of the four women, but she is a Moabite, a descendant of the incestuous Lot, which you can read about in Genesis 19, and thus low on the social and spiritual register of some of the racially protective people of God. Nevertheless, this Gentile becomes the literal great-grandmother of David, and so a distant great-great-great-great-great-great-grandmother of Jesus. 
the fourth woman in Matthew's genealogy. Matthew, we could say, blushes to name directly. He calls her circumspectly, you may have noticed, the wife of Uriah, indicating incidentally that she is not the lawful wife of David. We know her as Bathsheba, more a victim, especially as we understand in the Me Too world, than an agent in the Old Testament's most famous scandalous seduction in 2 Samuel chapter 11. But Bathsheba too is a great, 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 great grandmother of Jesus. So several truths about these women catch the reader's attention. First, the simple fact that women are mentioned at all is noteworthy. Usually, the names of men suffice in biblical genealogies. And women's names are added if they will ensure the purity of the line or enhance its dignity in some way. Three of the four women do not seem to immediately serve either of those purposes. And this brings us to the second sort of surprise for Matthew's readers at their inclusion. All four women are non-Jews. We've already noticed in the case of Ruth that she's a Moabitess. But a closer reading of the text shows us that Tamar is actually a Canaanite. Rahab is a Jerichoite. And Bathsheba, through marriage, is a Hittite. And this leads us to the third and perhaps most important observation. All four women, if we put it delicately, are anomalous or irregular. In three of the four cases, they are sexually or morally anomalous. Except in the case of Ruth, and if you know the story of Ruth, she's a little aggressive with Boaz. <laughs> a little bit, we could say. We could read a little bit. She knows what she wants. And one gets the impression that Matthew, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, has really worked and poured over his knowledge of the Old Testament until he could locate the most questionable liaisons possible in order to insert them, insert them into his record. And so finally, in this way, to preach the gospel of Jesus through a genealogy. The scandal of Gentiles and sinners in the first line, the first section of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, gives Matthew his first extended chance to preach gospel, good news. From the beginning of the genealogy, from that first grouping of 14, the gospel is about mercy. The gospel is about a second chance. The gospel is about loving people who don't deserve to be loved by the world's thinking. The four model matriarchs of, G of, Jew uh, of Jewish history are Sarah and Rebecca and Leah and Rachel, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob's wives. They were available, were they not? They were available to Matthew to include Sarah, Abraham, whose wife was Sarah. Isaac, whose wife was Rebekah. 
But Matthew didn't. He could have, but he didn't because they didn't add to what he was getting at. What he wanted his readers to know, to see. What he was preaching. A gospel that was deep and wide. That was deep and wide. It was not the foreign women, but the ethnically pure men, men like Judah and David, who really tarnished Matthew's genealogy, if anyone was tarnishing it. Jerome, in the fourth century, one of the early church fathers said, it should be noted that in the genealogy of the Savior, the mention of no holy women is included, but rather those whom Scripture blames in order to show that he who came for sinners would efface the sins of all. Inoffensive Ruth victimized Tamar, converted Rahab, used Bathsheba, and that's really what we must say about her, that she was used shamefully by the king. Not her shame, but his Martin Luther, as might be expected, sees in these strange gospel characters God's desire to show how much love he has for sinners. It is, writes Luther, as though God intended for the hearer of the genealogy to say, Oh, Christ is the kind of person who is not ashamed of sinners. In fact, he even puts them in his family tree. Then Luther gives this point a nice ethical twist. Now if the Lord does that here, so ought we to despise no one, but to put ourselves right in the middle of the fight for sinners and to help them. Fast forward all the way to the end and we have an unwed teenage mother. An unwed teenage mother who is the fifth mother of Jesus in Matthew's genealogy. Who would have been despised by those around her were it not for the grace and the dignity of Joseph, her husband. The first two words in the Greek manuscript of the Gospel of Matthew are Biblios Geneseos, which would be translated literally as the book of the Genesis, which suggests that in Matthew's mind, the deepest beginning in history was not the birth of the world, but the birth of the world's Savior. Or as with John's gospel, which begins even more similarly to the first words in Scripture in Genesis, in the beginning, Matthew, at a minimum, wants to communicate that God is doing a new thing through this child born in Bethlehem. God is doing a new thing, a revolutionary thing, maybe even a greater thing than the first thing, creation by the Creator, as God creates in an entirely new way.
Jesus later, later says in the fifth chapter of Luke's gospel, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. In the 19th chapter of his gospel, of Luke's gospel, in the encounter at the end with Zacchaeus, Jesus says, for the Son of Man did not come to seek and save, for the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost in an age of Me Too and in our current political and social climate, Matthew's genealogy of Jesus has an almost subversive but undeniable message. Paul put it this way in his letter to the Galatians, So in Christ Jesus you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ, who were baptized into Christ, have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile. Neither slave nor free, neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus the Lord. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. And so at this uh, culmination of Advent, as we reflect back on the genealogy of Jesus, we must remember that Jesus belongs in the church and he belongs to the church. But he just as much belongs on the outside of the church and his gospel belongs on the outside of the church and to those and for those historically left out of the circle of love, the circle of acceptance. Those who because of the stains in their life, their mistakes and their shame, have been excluded from genealogies and excluded from families and excluded from gatherings and excluded from family photos and family memories. If there had been any doubt before, we must be sure now the gospel is for those who have previously been left off the invite list and left out of the room. The gospel of Jesus, salvation by grace, is for the least and the last and the lost. I want to close with these words by Brennan Manning. He says, Because salvation is by grace through faith, I believe that among the countless number of people standing in front of the throne and in front of the Lamb, dressed in white robes and holding palms in their hand, from Revelation 7, I will see the prostitute from the Kit Kat Ranch in Carson City, Nevada, who tearfully told me that she could find no other employment to support her two-year-old son. I shall see the woman who had an abortion and is haunted by guilt and remorse, but did the best she could faced with the grueling alternatives. I shall see the businessman besieged with debt who sold his integrity in a series of desperate transactions. The insecure clergyman addicted to being liked who never challenged his people from the pulpit and longed for unconditional love. The sexually abused teen molested by his father and now selling his body on the street who as he falls asleep each night after his last trick whispers the name of the unknown God he learned about in Sunday school. But how, we ask. And then the voice says, they have washed their robes and have made them white in the blood of the Lamb. I hope that your Advent and that your Christmas are informed by Matthew's genealogy. 
and the richness of the gospel therein. And that you and that your life and your heart and your mind and your world and your family are transformed by that radical grace. And that you will be or become an agent of his grace in our world, in our graceless world. The kingdom is coming. God's kingdom of love and grace. And he sends us out as emissaries of that. Let's pray. Fill us with your spirit, God. Infuse us with your life and your love. Help us come to terms with and to receive and to accept and to embrace your radical grace for us and for people like us and people not like us. For people who are better than us and people who are worse than us. And everyone who's just different. We thank you for Matthew's spirit-inspired inclusion and the message therein of a Messiah who would break everyone's mold in such good ways. We worship you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. These things we pray in Christ the Messiah. Amen.